making food choices in this world, uh, sustainability even aside is a complicated thing. Welcome to another episode of Who's Saving the Planet, the show where we bring you the latest in trailblazing innovators, sustainability companies, and determined activists working to save the planet. I'm Tony Noto. With me, as always, is Lex Keephaber. How are you, Lex? Oh, I'm fantastic, Tony. How in the world are you doing it? How is Ernie? Oh, man, you're going to hear squeaky sounds galore in this intro. I'll try to keep it at a minimum, but he's doing all right. He had a rough weekend, but he's on the mend. Glad to hear that. Ernie, of course, is your sidekick and dog. Mine, Simon, is taking a well-deserved rest somewhere. Yeah, they're, they're the Chewbacca's to our Han Solos. So generous that we can be Han Solo. So I am so excited about today's episode um, for a lot of reasons. Chief among them is I absolutely love our guest on like a personal, spiritual, and emotional level. Evan is a phenomenal human being. Yeah, he's a buddy of yours. Yes, Evan Hanzor. He is uh, a dear friend, and he also is a phenomenal chef. And he was so kind to make the rehearsal dinner for my wife and I's wedding. So in keeping with the Star Wars theme here, would he be the Luke Skywalker to your Han Solo? Yeah, I'd take that. I think he's probably tall. He's much taller than I am. So we'd have to figure that he might be the Chewbacca to my R2D2. Oh, okay. C3PO. Whatever, whatever. (laughs) But in addition to being an amazing chef, Evan is also a leader in the community. So we talk a lot about who's saving the planet in terms of technological or process innovations, different ways that people are doing things. And in this episode, we really talk about the way that you can do something that is very similar, very, very well known for a lot of us. Something as simple as cooking food, a place where love begins in the kitchen and use that as a vehicle to make for such a rich community environment, to make the soil in that community healthier and foster an opportunity for people to connect and also for people to understand a little bit more about the way that their actions and their choices affect those around um, those around them and the world at large. Yeah, I particularly liked how he's an artist. He's an artist in the kitchen and he's a humble artist outside the kitchen. And he incorporated his art into his work, which we talk about a lot. And he was a little bit hesitant to call himself an artist in the kitchen, but I think chefs are artists. I think that there is an element of artistic integrity to food. And the fact that he's sustainable while doing it was even better and, and really magical for this particular episode. Well, a little Evan is so humble. So a little bit about him. He was long time the chef at the Brooklyn restaurant Egg, which was a darling of the critics and, and always had a line at the door. He also is the author of the cookbook Breakfast Recipes to Wake Up For. And he was uh, a Star Chef Rising Star awardee, specifically for the category of sustainability. So this has been in his roots for a long time. Evan uh, has cooked at the James Beard Foundation many times, and he is very active in the community as a core member of the Food Issues Group uh, and has worked with the Chef Action Network, Oxfam, a number of different organizations that help to address food insecurity in the community. So he really touches on so many aspects of how to give back in terms of a local 
perspective, but also can filter into, you know, think locally or think globally, act locally. He does both. And it's a wonderful example of how just making small intentional choices can have a profound impact to the people around you. Yes. Don't sleep on this episode. Tune in to Evan and pick up his book. Available when, Alex? His next book, Tables of Contents, which he will talk about, it should be coming out momentarily. So check out the show notes for links to that any second. And we love this conversation and love supporting him. Evan, you are the best. Your biscuits are legendary. Thank you for coming on. We're so glad to share your story. Evan, welcome to Who's Saving the Planet. How are you? I'm great. Thanks for having me. Excited to be here. Well, excited to have you. Thank you for spending part of your week with us. Happy to. So excited. So excited. (laughs) (laughs) I'm so excited. Lex, we've been we've been talking about this for for a while, for I would say at least a year, right? And um, mostly finally pulled this because pulled it, together. it also gives me an opportunity to talk about one of the favorite meals that I ever had. Okay. One of the favorite meals you've ever had was cooked by Chef Evan over here. One of my favorite meals I ever had, I conjoled Evan into cooking for us our rehearsal dinner for my wedding with my wife and I. And Evan made one of um, my favorite uh, dishes, the Millard. He cooked duck three ways. You know, I was just scrolling through um, some old fo- photos on my phone, getting, you know, clearing up some space. And I came across, I was about to text you, I'll send it to you after this, uh, a picture of all the pans of the different roast duck breast and the the legs braising brought back all the memories of that night that was a that was a great meal well, so, so any good. any secrets any tips because i've actually i've cooked a lot of birds in my day but never duck i wouldn't even know where to begin yeah the, the main thing uh, i think that we did was you sort of separate basically the legs need to cook a certain way and the breasts need to cook a certain way you want them sort of medium rare not overcooked and when you roast the whole thing it's hard to uh, sort of keep a difference between those two. So we separated the legs and the breast and, and did, did a braise of the legs. So then the meat is nice and tender. You can shred it uh, and mix it into something else. And then the breasts are, are just, you know, ready to slice like a, basically like a, like a duck steak. So Interesting. that's, that's the basic, but I, I don't do, I don't tend to do a lot with duck uh, seasoning wise, just because there's so much richness in there, you know, salt, maybe a little bit of herbs, um, you know, orange, obviously very classic. Um, but yeah, that was, Oh, that it was, was so fun. delightful. You, yeah. There was confit, there was leg, there was roast breast. It was beautiful. And we're definitely going to get into the chef portion of Evan, but I wanted to be full disclosure that I'm completely unbiased about you as a person, as a dear friend, and also the work that you do. So yeah. in journalistic integrity round, I am unobjective to this end, <laughs> but I want to talk about the cookbook that you have recently put out into the world, the tables of contents. So can you tell us a little bit about what that is, where the inspiration came from and the mission behind it, in addition to the amazing food in it? Totally. Um, I'll I'll start with a little background on tables of contents, um, which is an organization that uh, started basically as a dinner party as a way to use food as a lens for exploring art, uh, literature, music, culture, as, uh, as you know, Lex, <clears throat> I was a writer, a poet when I was in college before I got into cooking. So eventually I made the shift over to cooking, um, as, I, as I mentioned before, you know, basically, basically because I could get people to eat my food 
but couldn't get them to read my poems. And Tables of Contents was sort of a, a way to scratch this, this literary itch I continued to have through my cooking career. So one year, the Food Book Fair, which is a gathering of different food publications that was having a weekend event at the Wythe Hotel up the street from Egg, they asked if we would cook a sort of closing meal for their weekend. And we decided to turn it into a literary meal. George, my partner at Egg, and I um, put together a menu inspired by The Sun Also Rises, uh, which in hindsight was a great choice because there's a ton of booze in Hemingway. It was easy to get a friendly audience around the tables and uh, everyone, had, everyone had a great time. Um, <laughs> awesome. And this was our first, our first attempt at doing something where we were bringing the, our, our interests of food and literature together in, in the same room. And we, we loved it, we couldn't get enough of it. So year after year, we would do these closing dinners for the food book fair. And eventually we spun that into a reading series where we'd host authors to come read from their forthcoming or, or recent books. We'd have three authors on a given night and each reading would be paired with a snack inspired by a passage that they had read that, that evening. So everyone would get to hear the authors read the section of their story or their selection of poems. And then following the reading would actually get to ingest and consume something that they had heard about. So a way to sort of, you know, bring art into the body in this interesting way and hopefully have each the, the, the food and the writing be amplified by the presence of the other. That would have been my favorite club in high school. <laughs> I, got, I would have been at that meeting. It, it was my favorite club in adult. That was my favorite. Like, <laughs> well, like I've, I've never experienced it. I, I would like to. Where do you guys host these things? In Brooklyn? We were hosting them at Egg, which was oh, at Egg. Okay. a very convenient location because we only serve breakfast and lunch at the restaurant. So the evenings, uh, the space was always available. And we would use the space for a number of things. We'll talk about that more, but community groups and phone banking, all sorts of stuff. But Tables of Contents was the little personal project that, that lived and incubated there. Now, of course, we're not meeting in person and doing these events. We have shifted online a bit. We do author interviews on our Instagram. We share recipes that folks can cook at home inspired by our favorite books. And the Tables of Contents community cookbook is sort of the most recent um, iteration of, of the TOC experience. And that came about just before Thanksgiving, really, was when the planning started. And we were looking for ways to help this organization, FIG, Food Issues Group, with their food relief work around New York City. It's a group that I'm involved in that has been feeding folks in their homes free groceries and prepared meals for nine months in 2020. And always looking for fundraising to keep that going. You know, such a critical service for so many people in the city. Yeah. And Tables of Contents decided to try to chip in by reaching out to a bunch of our past authors who had read the series and asking them not, not to write something, because I, I think you know uh, authors are asked to, to write things or to speak all the time, but just to share a, a family recipe or a recipe they like to cook uh, as a way to give fans of, of the authors uh, sort of a peek into their into their kitchens their pantries their ways of sustaining themselves um, in their own homes we got a great response about three dozen authors got back to us and and said sure we'd love to love to take part we were able to pair those uh, recipes that they submitted up with a number of amazing illustrators and put together this beautifully designed illustrated uh, cookbook that it will have print copies of uh, the first week of February. So it's, it's coming up. Um, Amazing. Yeah. And that, and that will, yeah. that will go to raise funds for figs, food relief and sort of long-term food justice and sovereignty work in the city. So it's, it's been an amazing project, a way to bring all these three worlds of cooking and 
organizing and uh, art together in one. So I'm, I'm, I'm really excited about it. I, I just love that your background as a writer and an author just bled its way into your career as a chef. That's really incredible. Thanks. Yeah. I, I, I joke at the half joke, but I'm also quite serious about this. I joke that <laughs> Tables of Contents was sort of my back door into the literary world that I never would have had access to based on my writing, writing abilities. <laughs> so uh, all I had to do was seduce these great authors who I, I would, you know, dream of being in conversation with to come and share a meal. And, and that's how I got my spot at the table. But yeah, it's been a great way to tie those passions together. And, and I can't wait until yeah. it comes back because like it, it certainly, I'm sure, you know, the last table of contents has not been had. I'm sure you guys will find a new space and a new way to bring it back. There was always this fixture. There was this guy at the door, Torrance, who was always <laughs> a fantastically awkward character. I can't wait to, I hope he's doing well. So yeah. Torrance, if, he if, happens if you're to listening, listen to this, we miss you. We miss we you, miss you <laughs> Good luck. You know, I always hoped, I always hoped well for him, but yeah, the, the event itself was amazing. And I think you touched on a really great point, Tony, which was, and this is true of a lot of your career, Evan, it's not uh, singular in its intention or in the way that you approach an issue. So the book itself, while being, you know, an isolated incident in the sense of it's in a cookbook, it's bringing together authorship, your love of food, and also a way that touches the community that like functionally gives back. And that idea of like creating an ecosystem that can be represented in one thing, but actually is much more vast in terms of its intention, I think is a wonderful, a wonderful metaphor for like the idea of living sustainably, not as just like making an isolated decision, but just trying to like bake that into every choice and thought process that we have. Yeah, I think the interconnectedness of food is what actually kept me in the industry early on. When I started as a cook, it was it was fun. Uh, I like cooking food. I like you know tasting delicious things and, and being in a, in a kitchen environment to a degree, um, but being a writer, I sort of had these, I'm sure, outsized uh, ideas about my, my role in the world and the kind of issues I wanted to engage with. And in my head, I wanted to, you know, write about and think about big, quote, big things. And as I learned more about food and the way so many uh, other elements of our lives interconnect, intersected through food, politics, culture, identity, family, uh, ec economics, power, uh, I started to realize that it was, it was a pretty amazing uh, hub through which to address all of these other issues. Uh, and that was sort of the exciting thing about remaining engaged in that, in, in that field. Um, and I think it's sort of informed the way I like to try to use food to reach out to as many different um, areas of, of my life, at least as, as I can. I've been thinking about that, especially in the past year about how food is almost like this bridge between people um, the, the families are divided friends, you know, don't talk like it, it, these are trying times and we get on each other's nerves in terms of our political world world views on, on things and, but we can all come together at a table, more or less, and it usually like families who might otherwise fight, you know, they can get together over a hot meal and, and get along for a couple of hours <laughs> if the food is delicious. And at that, least, at least while your while your mouth is full, you can't be talking shit. <laughs> yeah, uh, <laughs> put a cannoli right in my mouth, and I don't say something that I regret. I'm right. just imagining Tony, your dinner table of these strong Italian American Staten Island men sitting around slinging back whiskey. I can't wait yeah. to get an invitation over there one day. <laughs> it's funny, yeah, and and they light the whiskey up on fire in Tess's Irish family. 
Okay. So, <laughs> I thought that I was like, I, I like hanging out with the Italians, but the Irish light it on fire and then drink it. It's a lot more fun. But I, I wanted so, to ask Evan though, real quick, like, yeah. do you think that there's an authorship in your cooking and in your art? Cause you, we were watching this uh, Fran Lebowitz documentary series on Netflix now, pretend it's a city. And she and has my a wife very, was watching that last night. I know everybody's watching this show and she's very strict with her views on art. She has this great little jab that she throws at uh, bakers and how they design cakes. And she goes, that's not art. And, I, and Tess, my wife and I were talking the other day. And I'm like, well, I, we agree with most of what this curmudgeon says, you know, about New York. And I was like, but I don't know if I agree with that. I think there is an art to food and there's an authorship to meals. And like Anthony Bourdain said, like, um, they tell you about someone when you cook for someone that tells them your, your joys and there's a story behind it and what makes them happy. And so I'm, I'm just wondering, like, what do you think is what you do art? And if your, if your talents as an author sort of translate into preparing a meal. Yeah. It's a, it's a question that we think and talk a lot about at tables of contents uh, at the end. I didn't say before, but at the end of the reading series, I moderate a discussion with the authors who have read and we discuss um, a bunch of, sort of similarities between cooking and writing, uh, process, craft, training, audience, authorship, as, as you say. And maybe I'm a bit of a curmudgeon too, but I've always had a little bit of a, of a concern or qualm about calling cooking art. Um, maybe it's because you know of the essential nature of food and, and it can feel problematic to put it into, into this uh, sort of different, different category. Um, maybe because there's such a range of, of different kinds of cooking and food that can span from creative to um, very much not uh, to destructive. Um, mm. But I, I do find, at least for myself, when I am cooking for tables of contents, there's something about the, the space that's created there and the dialogue between the food and the literature that does feel artistic, like an artistic conversation. And part of that may be that at a restaurant uh, or at home when you have guests over, pretty much the main goal of cooking for anyone is, is to access uh, one emotion, which would be comfort, right? Deliciousness, comfort, something in that realm. Art uh, has the capacity and I think uh, great art um, has sort of the success of addressing or calling out a number of different emotions and reactions from, from consumers of that art, which uh, in tables of contents, become something that I think I'm able to do with food. I can make a dish that I know is going to make folks a little uncomfortable mm. or uh, think about oh, I've got a power great example or of that. think about racism <laughs> or think about um, th themselves or trauma or identity, right. all these things that a paying customer at a breakfast restaurant is not looking to engage with at 8.30, 9 in the morning. Uh, but yeah, I think there, there could be something around intent um, that can elevate or bring an artistic um, eye to food and to cooking. I do think, and I, I didn't see um, the friendly Brits. Um, is it a documentary or film? Um, it's a docu-series, seven okay. episodes. And she one and, and they're all, every episode is about something different, but one episode she talks about art specifically. Yeah, I, I may miss- kindly to cake chefs. <laughs> right. I may misquote this, but my, uh, my wife, Rachel, who was watching last night did say, I think that Fran believes that musicians and chefs uh, have like access the most pleasure in life. So I don't know if that's the same as art, but it is a, it's a pretty good place to be in, I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
So I, I'm reminded by you started the story with Hemingway. And one of my favorite Hemingway quotes is anyone can be a writer. All you need to do is sit down at a typewriter and bleed. <laughs> and so I think also perhaps with artisticness, there's a, an element of misery that accompanies some of the more insightful or retrospective ways that we can opine about our own human experience. But I wanted to highlight one thing, because Evan, this has stuck with my memory forever. One, the way the tables of contents can can like the experience of listening to somebody read their own work is in and of itself powerful. And then eating a good dish is can also be a transformative experience, especially one that triggers like our memory. Right. We, we're we're very we're very good at memorizing remembering smells as they pertain to experiences. And there was one reading that a woman did where she was talking about like her life and the fact that she had a new child. And it was a very. um very bad sort of like a like bad situation for lots of reasons but the passage itself was talking about holding this infant and she described in that passage that the head the infant's head was soft and she felt that it felt like a little bit of soft gnocchi and i could feel everyone in the room be like oh god no is he gonna do it and then the dish came out after the reading and it was gnocchi and we all having just listened to this passage and this artless writer use that as a description of like her newborn's fragile head. And we're like, now we need to eat this thing. And it was this amazing experience of like taking our imagination and then manifesting it in something so viscerally tangible that it was like, it's never going to leave me. That's <laughs> so for better or worse, I will never forget that. Now yeah, I'm that... going to think of baby heads right. every time I see knuckles. <laughs> I, I was, that was a that was a pretty messed up <laughs> but I hope yeah the baby, exactly. it wasn't a tragic but story an amazing way to exp- well it's, it was it's not a, a it was not a happy story no oh, it, it wasn't shit. a happy story it was that passage uh, overall um but yeah that was uh the author carmen maria machado who's an unbelievable writer um storyteller and the, you know that sort of felt feels like so I'm glad you pointed that out like a, a really successful version of the tables of contents goal where uh, yeah if I served you gnocchi without that passage there would be no association with anything uh, you know uncomfortable or, or anything that might make you feel strange or a type of way about eating that dish but in conversation with the passage you then get this sort of visceral experience of that description you just read you actually ingest it and sort of experience it in a whole new way uh and the passage itself reframes the dish into something it wouldn't have been before so yeah that sort of thing i think is where the exciting intersections happen between the food uh and the art mm-hmm. yeah can you t- give us a couple of your favorite rep- recipes from your table of contents book now that's coming out in a week just one or two sure. examples you're like these are just to you know give our whet the appetite of our listeners to try to go out and find this book for themselves yeah yeah absolutely um abigail rosewood was one of my favorite authors who has read at the tables of content series i think she is a, a genius person um and she submitted a recipe for a vietnamese braised pork belly with eggs that mm. i actually made over the holidays which was remarkable just really amazing texture flavor familiar but also new to me in lots of ways uh, and then Helen Phillips submitted a recipe for a grape nut custard which uh, is basically mm. kind of like you know the grape nut cereal baked into this custardy dessert my mom was an, a huge grape nuts fan has been her her whole life I think she she thinks she invented 
putting great nuts on top of ice cream as, as this remarkable creation of, of dessert, which is really great. Um, so I made that for, for her as well. And that was, that was very cool to, uh, to make something that already sort of had a reference point for her, but, but was brand new uh, in another way. Uh, those are a couple that jump out. Um, but there are, I think a total is 41 recipes in there, 36 of them from authors who have read. And then five of them are uh, sort of from the t tables of contents vault. We pulled recipes that we've served at past mm. reading series and shared them uh, sort of with their literary context. And one of those is a, is a honey ice cream, which is just so good. Mm. So there's, there's a pretty good range in there. Um, everything from breakfast to dessert. Did Lex freeze? Uh, just emotionally, Tony, but I'm still here spiritually. <laughs> um, to find the book, we're going to include a link in the show notes. Uh, and what's the website so we can so people can go discover this for themselves? Yeah, just tablesofcontents.org. Tables of contents, like attorneys general. Tables is plural. Right, plurals everywhere. Okay, I want to transition now a little bit to talk about your life before tables of contents, and specifically the way that restaurants operate. Because you know, for longtime listeners of the show, they know that there's nothing that I like more than talking about restaurants, and yours was a particular favorite of mine. But I want to pull back the curtain on what it means to actually source food in a way that demonstrates and, and lives and manifests an understanding of seasonality and of locality. So actually finding, buying, and making food that is produced by people within arm's reach, metaphorically speaking. So tell us a little bit about what that means to actually be like farm to table as a restaurant. Well, I think as a very commonly used marketing term. Unfortunately, it means a lot of different things. Um, at Egg, it, it was a, it was sort of a, always an aspiration for us. It was always a goal. Um, and I think we, we got quite close to that goal in many ways. Um, but what I mean by that is that, you know, in a restaurant, there are a lot of, in any business, a lot of choices you need to make. Um, and for us, one of the choices that we, uh, was that our foundation was sourcing in a way that felt responsible, sustainable to us. The majority of the time that meant sourcing locally uh, for a number of reasons, for uh, the environmental and agricultural sustainability reasons, for the reasons of local economy and community. Um, but also uh, there were times when, you know, I guess we couldn't really achieve that. One example that comes to mind is, is citrus. We had to have this sort of conversation and decide are, are we going to source oranges right which don't grow around here uh and serve them for orange juice if that's going to draw more customers into the business uh and allow us to employ more people and give us a decent margin on a drink that sort of thing um i guess i just bring that up to say that it's really complicated uh and for all the years i was at egg each year we were working to make incremental improvements in our sourcing so at your typical restaurant right you get a, a food delivery once a week or at least like, I don't know, three, four times a week, right? And this food shows up from a giant truck and it drops off in the front. And that food could have been grown in California, sent to a distribution center in Colorado, and then shipped to a, you know, another food distribution center, maybe in New Jersey or in upstate New York, and then made it to your restaurant. So the food could have like literally traveled across the country. It's been uh, preserved through different elements of making sure that it looks and feels fresh, generally chemically speaking. 
And the labor factors involved with making it are not going to be great because they need to be able to have these margins be able to be sustainable or excuse not sustainable right they need to make their margin and so they're willing to skimp on other aspects and this is you can see when you're like in new york city you'll see the trucks pull up and then just offloading pallet after pallet of this food that comes from anywhere from california or central america over all over the country all over the world and so in order to be able to not do that you need to limit yourself in a some in a number of ways and one of them is like what can go on your menu because like you just said, you're a breakfast spot. Imagine walking to a breakfast spot and not being able to order an orange juice. Like that's kind of crazy, but that decision you have to make. And in the same way, like strawberries aren't in season all the time. And like in the winter time, can you talk a little about like how your menu changed to reflect what was available and then how you communicated that to the customer so that they understood what decisions went into that final creation, which is the things you can order on a menu. The goal of Egg when it opened uh, was to bring these ingredients uh, that at that point, which is a little over 15 years ago, were really only available in New York at fine dining restaurants. And we're talking, you know, locally sourced beautiful produce. We're talking heirloom grains. We're talking uh, fair trade uh, and direct trade coffee. We're talking, um, you know, high quality cheese and, uh, and meats these things that you would pretty much only find uh, at sort of higher end restaurants at, at a pretty inaccessible price point, but to, to share with folks and, and convince people that they could be a part of an everyday meal like breakfast. So the sourcing was critical to seeing out that mission on the plate. And that meant buying grains from Anson Mills, that meant buying local, uh, local dairy, that meant uh, sourcing pasture-raised beef or burgers um, and sustainably raised, you know, chicken uh, and ducks for, for other proteins. And also meant crafting a menu that could see itself through the year uh, in a pretty consistent way. Um, and with, with breakfast, eggs, of course, at, at a restaurant called Egg, we're critical to that. Um, the nice thing is there, you can have eggs year round. You can have dried grains like grits year round. You can have hearty greens like kale in, in, this, in the Northeast even year round. So a lot of the menu choices about what we're gonna form the staples <clears throat> of the menu were in consideration of what was accessible, sustainable, um, and could be somewhat consistent. And then uh, the add-ons or sort of the, the specials that we would run at the restaurant were the seasonal elements that would highlight whatever was available at a certain time of year. So part of the year we'd have strawberries, you know, for a month and a half or so uh, that you could add to your granola or your pancakes or French toast. But there were also five to six months where all you could have uh, is raw, you know, fresh or sauteed apples. Uh, and people would come in all the time asking for berries, asking for, um, you know, things that we, we just didn't have at a given time of year. And, and we'd have to explain to them why we're making certain choices around those, those things. As you're saying, Lex, we're choosing not to source uh, fruit that was, you know, grown with problematic irrigation practices in Mexico or in California, and instead trying to support a, a delicious local uh, orchards. Um, and it was hard. <laughs> I think yeah. uh, the front of house does a lot of the heavy lifting on that, the, ser the service team trying to communicate that story in a way that makes people feel uh, excited or, or at least not upset uh, at those choices. But um, who, who would it upset? Like the person who comes back a second time and is like, hey, I had this thing six months ago and it was really good. 
uh, can I get it again? And you got to be like, no, like that's the only person that would really be upset. Right. Cause the, uh, the average person comes in and they're kind of like, it's a surprise. Like, like when you walk into a restaurant, specials are different all the time. Right. I think that's true for, um, maybe to a degree for dinner restaurants, but there's something about breakfast that I think is quite personal to a lot of people. Mm. And they have an understanding of what, what they're looking for in a breakfast. Um, and they expect it to be available at, at a breakfast restaurant. So they expect there to be berries, you know, available on their pancakes if they want them anytime. I mean, not a sustainability example, but we never served eggs Benedict, just a thing we decided not to do. Why? People, people, people well, we just like, didn't really like hollandaise all that much. It's kind of <laughs> gross, isn't it? It's a little gross. You know, we had, it was a sort of Southern, the, the menu is Southern inspired, especially from the low country region. So we were highlighting things like country ham and grits um, and biscuits and gravy. And we wanted to sort of, you know, share those dishes instead of just serving this kind of breakfast, diner, whatever classic. Uh, yeah. But people would come in, not even look at the menu and just order an eggs Benedict. And we'd have to say, well, if you look at the menu, you'll see that we, we do not have that. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's very important for me to pause on this right now and say, you have no idea the crazy shit that people will order at restaurants to having <laughs> nothing to do with what's on your menu. Yeah. I, not- I've worked at steakhouses for years and people are like, can I have a club sandwich? And we're like, no, that's not when they're like, well, don't you have lettuce? Don't you have tomatoes? Don't you have bread? Right. Like, I think you can make a club sandwich. And you're like, that's not how this works. Right. We have an agreement. <laughs> we have a menu. And no way do people respect that. Yeah. I mean, man, Sorry, this, pa- this, past, this past year is a special, um, especially interesting look into the sort of entitlement of customers and restaurants uh, in the midst of a pandemic. But uh, it's, it's a lot. It's a lot to manage just as a normal restaurant to say, this is what we have, this is what we don't have. Then to explain to people, this is why this eggs and toast and hash brown cost this much and you think it should cost half as much. Uh, here's where we're sourcing the potatoes, here's where we're sourcing the eggs, here's how much the butter for each order costs. So there, there's a lot of storytelling. Again, sort of to go back to tables of contents idea, but there is a lot of storytelling in, in food and in, in ex, uh, exciting people to learn about uh, what kind of choices we're making, why we're making them and, and what impact it has on the food. And if they like the food, that's easy to do. The yeah. deliciousness of, of a dish tells a lot of that story itself. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, it's a complicated, it's a complicated thing. So I walk in, I want a Western omelet. Can I get it? No, you can't actually at egg, you can't get anything in your omelet except cheese. <laughs> <laughs> Is that true? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And wow. part of that is because the omelet is this French style omelet. It's very soft. Uh, it's runny. It's not kind of like an American diner style omelet that can hold a bunch of stuff inside of it. Uh, and some of these choices are just arbitrary, right? Maybe yeah. that's where the authorship comes in. Like, this is the omelet we serve. You will, <laughs> you, you, will, like you, will <laughs> you will like it if you get it. But if you, if you want something else, either get something else in the menu or, or go somewhere else. So how much does the omelet cost and how good is this cheese? Cause it better be mind blowing if that's the only thing that's in the omelet. It's really, it's really good. Um, I don't remember how much the omelet costs when we, when we close maybe 14, 15 bucks it's an omelet uh, with Grafton cheddar cheese, which is an amazing cheddar cheese from, from Vermont, Vermont uh, served with a hash brown and broiled tomatoes. 
describing the we folks- talk a lot about like who's sorry i haven't i didn't mean to cut you off there no no, no it's good well, it's just to say, like, we talk a lot about who's saving the planet and, and lots of different aspects of that. And I think this is an important one where, like, the choices that you're making to buy better food, to be more sustainable as a restaurant, implicitly require something of the customer as well. Like, understanding what those choices mean and why you made them. And that requires more communication and, like, more of a behavior change from us as regular people, right? We're walking around and saying, I'm going to take an extra 30 seconds to try to understand what's going on here instead of just being like give me my damn western omelet and I, I think that that's an important aspect of like saving the planet writ large which is this conversation that we're constantly having between the people that make stuff and the people that buy stuff and like we on the people that buy stuff things should expand our our appetite for learning a little bit more in order to be able to make better choices. And on the making stuff side of things, it's also giving people a little bit more information to inform them. So it, it feels delightful to be like, you know what? Now I get it. I get why the butter is a little bit more expensive. And I'm totally happy to pay that extra 20 cents or whatever the marginal cost is on that. But it's and I hard. Think, and I think food does have a real power to, to do that and to communicate that because a number of folks will, will come into the restaurant have no idea about our mission, our values, our sourcing, just be coming in to get breakfast, get a meal. It's really great. And then they'll ask, you know, the server, man, you know, that, that was delicious. Where, where are the eggs from? Or tell me more about this, this ingredient. Yeah. And that's a real opportunity to open eyes around what sourcing uh, can do, uh, which is much more powerful way to open the door. I think than by trying to lecture at folks, get them excited through the flavor and, yeah. and then, uh, they're a lot more receptive to, to the message. But what, give me an idea as to how the eggs are sourced, because this is something that confuses a lot of folks. The average person walks into, say, the Amish market or, um, you know, Morton Williams and is like, whatever's on sale. And right. if the free range <clears throat> eggs are on sale, great. Or cage free. I don't mm -hmm. even know if people know the actual difference. Talk to us a little about that. Is there like a little like crash course that you can describe to us? Like how, what makes that $14 omelet so good and why, where, are those, where are those eggs come from? Well, on the, on the egg front, it's, it's really, and I think purposefully confusing, right? There's a lot of vested interest in making uh, labels around food difficult to understand uh, so that folks can't make uh, empowered food choices. I think right. that's a systemic thing. They don't want you to know how these eggs are sourced. Well, yeah, they just the, want the, you to the, buy them. The watering down of, of terms like organic, of free range, of cage free, right. all these things, you know, they, they end up slipping down to this lowest common denominator instead of maybe how they were intended to be deployed uh, at a certain point. Farm, farm to table is a great example of that, I think, uh, where it's at now uh, versus versus where maybe it was intended to go. Um, you know, I think that's... I would also say that... Go ahead. Yeah. We... I think that also we as customers are, are kind of happy not knowing in a lot of ways, right? Like if we actually knew what the inside of a food processing plant looked like or what a dairy farm looked like, it may make us super uncomfortable. And so there's some argument to be made that like the complicity is us being all too happy buying, you know, Purdue chicken at a price where like, this is incredibly cheap. I don't really want to know how it's possible that they grew a bird and they can sell it to me for like $2 or whatever mm -hmm. it is. Yeah, I think that's definitely kind of a learned behavior over gen that, that may, may have been different several generations ago to, you know, to some degree. Um, 
but yeah, this messaging of let us make it easier for you. Trust us. Uh, that sort of big food has consistently preached trust us, trust, trust. Uh, but what we really, really need is more verifying. And when we talk about sourcing eggs, that's something where personally, you know, I'll go to the farmer's market and buy eggs and at a, you know, one stand or another, they may be $5 a dozen or $6 a dozen. Um, maybe it's higher in New York than some other places, but you have, you're, you're shrinking that gap of, of the supply chain to the point where you can actually talk to someone who can answer questions about what's happening on their property with their chickens. Uh, and then you can make an informed choice about whether or not that's the right uh, dozen eggs for you to buy. Um, when you go to the grocery store, you know, there's, there's another layer that you're removed. Um, for me, finding labels that give you some confidence that uh, if you have certain values or guidelines around the way uh, animals are treated or eggs are produced, for example, uh, is a helpful is a helpful sort of um, marker to navigate those things. You know, I look for certified humane or animal welfare approved, those sorts of labels that have a step further than cage free or free range. But it's uh, making food choices in this world. Uh, sustainability, even aside, is a complicated thing. Price, accessibility, um, health, all these things. But when you add sustainability into it and trying to make that a, a central part of your personal or businesses sourcing, uh, it's a big it's a big effort. As Lex was saying, as opposed to us getting one big truck that pulls up in front of egg and drops off all our our goods, you know, as a chef, I'm managing uh, relationships with 15 to 20 different farms, uh, yeah. which is in, I guess you could look at it in a way that says it's extraordinarily inefficient, but it's a much more effective way of sourcing uh, towards our values. Um, but yeah, it's tough. I'm not going to say it's not yeah. a difficult choice to make, but and I think there is a shared responsibility between consumers and vendors to, um, you know, engage on these issues and education and um, that's going to be part of it. But there are also enormous systemic issues that are much bigger than any food business or any individual choice that right. are, are the crux of, of where a lot of the issues lie. Yeah. And that's, that's, that's the thing that I wrestle with sometimes is like, well, if I want my bacon, egg and cheese sandwich for five bucks, you know, I shouldn't, have to feel guilty for it. It's really the corporations that should really be working to make a difference. I mean, if I want bacon on my bagel and, and the, the breakfast that I want, I should have it. And the average person can't afford to go out and get a $14, $15 omelet with, with just cheese. Right, right. You know, so I mean, so it's like, it, it's tough for the average consumer to, to justify spending that premium on, on a meal. Whereas like, you know, they might not even be happy at the end of it. You know what totally. I mean? Yeah, it's, it's a tough, it's a tough think um, thing to do because, you know, I'm someone who says, who totally believes you should never, no one should ever be ashamed for the food choices they're making because people make these choices for all sorts of reasons, uh, financial, personal um, access, as we mentioned before. Uh, so when you get to that question about, do I, do I get a bacon, egg and cheese? Sure. You could say, I'm just going to get it without bacon because this feels like something I don't want a practice of raising animals that I, I don't want to engage right, in. Right, right. And I can afford that. Sure. That's one option, but it's also equally true that you may have no access whatsoever to a quote, good quality bacon. And, and what does that, what does that mean? And, and why are you forced to make choices in that kind of system? So there's, there's a lot of different angles, I think, at which we need to address these, these issues in this country in particular, um, but, but 
um, pretty much all over the world, we're seeing these kinds of systems replicated and unfortunately um, leading to, to pretty devastating impacts in my opinion on uh, folks' food choices and ultimately their health and, and the environment. Right. I don't think it needs to be all or nothing though, right? Like if we can figure out how to make a couple better decisions every week and that can both, we have a motto over here, right? To make saving the planet easier and delightful. And I keep preaching this and I don't know if people like it or not, but I keep saying it. And I think that the best expression of that would be going to a restaurant that can be a delightful, wonderful experience that is also doing all of the all of the conscientious things involved with sourcing their food. So you're literally, you're just eating a beautiful meal, but you're learning a little bit in the meantime, and you are helping to support local economies, uh, food made responsibly using restorative agriculture, all of these things. Like you are participating in saving the planet in a way that is easy ish. If you can afford it, obviously there's an element of privilege and it damn what it better be delightful. Yeah. It's gotta be good. It's gotta be good. And, yeah. the, and there are all these other, as you're saying, like impacts that you can then walk away from a meal with, uh, you know, you, you go into a local restaurant, it's a staple of your community. That's, that's adding uh, value to your, your lived experience in every day and in the way, uh, you know, large food conglomerates are, are not doing, I don't think, you know, you're, you know, who you're paying, maybe they live in the neighborhood, you know, you're supporting, uh, you know, safe and, and at least reasonably well compensated work environment. Uh, and all these factors, I think, go into an understanding of sustainability. It's not just about the, the ingredient, but about the whole context and system in which that is brought from its source to, to the plate, um, which is uh, a very complicated set of uh, choices to make well, but so, so satisfying and, and so, um, so cool to see that the way those interconnected choices can, can end up influencing uh, a community of, of workers and eaters and, and farmers. Yeah. So I think we could keep going on here for another like hour, at least digging into all of these aspects and certainly touching on the last thing that you said. So I want to just sort of end there briefly, which is the community aspect. You at Egg had um, this tremendous opportunity to use the space for a diverse set of events and bringing people together because it was just breakfast and lunch. So the place was available at dinner for other opportunities and you made full use of that. But I wanted to just touch briefly on like why you decided to do that. It would have been a lot easier to just let it lay fallow and not have to put in the work and what you got out of that in ways that were surprising and delightful, you know, like how that made the whole experience um, more rich. Yeah, I think um, a big part of that is based in sort of our, our mission statement at Egg, which hits a couple of key points, um, being a great place to work creating a transformative experience for our customers, um, make a you know, good sustainably raised food available to more people, uh, and also to improve the soil in which we farm. And, and we use that term soil literally because Egg does <clears throat> operate a farm in the Catskills where we grow produce for the restaurant, but also metaphorically the soil, the substrate of our community, of our neighborhood, uh, of our region, ultimately of, of our world. And uh, acting on a, on a local level is the way that we found to be most effective in, in ultimately having these ripple effects uh, up, up the chain and up the scale. So sharing resources is a, is a big part of that in, in our opinion and having this space, which 
you know, in New York, it's, it's honestly a, a huge resource uh, or on the flip side, a huge barrier for organizations or individuals trying to do, do good work to find a space where they can gather people safely uh, and uh, in a way that's going to allow their, their vision to find some, find some grounding. So we would offer the space for pretty much anyone who had a, sort of a, an activity or an organization that we believed in. Uh, and wanted to see see grow w- would come and be able to use a space at egg and that ranged from uh, you know phone banking for political campaigns book launches for friends um, training sessions for community organizations and activists and organizers uh, food issues group ended up meeting at egg regularly as a sort of study group session for personal and systemic transfer transformation efforts uh, and it it not, not only was it like in a way sort of a nice thing or, and, and an easy thing for us to do to uh, provide access to space. In addition to other chefs who were trying to get things off the ground, we held a number of pop-up dinners at the restaurant where they could try out their concept and, and start to develop their food business. But it, it came back to us in so many ways. We would have staff sit in on a discussion about indigenous food sovereignty and, and sort of walk away with a different understanding about uh, our place as a restaurant in the food system, um, or they might join a, uh, a film screening by a group that was working to empower women into political leadership positions and find a, a new way to get engaged in, on the local level. Um, so like with any, I think, good environment, um, everything feeds in into each other. And so we were giving, but we were also receiving, and it was a powerful part of uh, what we could offer our staff and what we could offer our, our community as well. You have Brooklyn hours and Tokyo hours. And so that uh, those are the, the two locations, Brooklyn and Tokyo. That's pretty interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, I think there's, there's an important point of that story, which is unfortunately egg was one of the restaurants that didn't make it out of the pandemic. So mm-hmm. after 15 years, um, your location in Williamsburg, uh, shut its doors, which is, uh, you know, I can't imagine what it is for you personally. I was emotionally hit by that because I have so many wonderful memories there. So maybe like just spend a minute talking about like wh- how you see that being part of the evolution of what it is that you've had the opportunity to do and what you can do next. Yeah, we closed at the end of September, um, a little over 15 years there. And it was obviously a wrenching decision to make. It was uh, on a financial and business level, ultimately an, an easy one, given what we were looking at with numbers, with COVID, with winter approaching and, and the levels of assistance that were available to us in particular. Um, but to restaurants at large, this is something that so many of our friends have been struggling with this year and continue to struggle with now. Um, but as you say, as you say, Lex, it's, it's also been a very uh, restorative period for us in a way to be able to take some space. You know, when, you, when you're in the grind every day, there are, uh, there's a limited amount of mental space you have to devote to anything. And this, this has given us some time away from the day-to-day uh, of a restaurant, which can include more things than any of your listeners could imagine if they haven't, <laughs> if they haven't worked in a restaurant, you know, any, anything can happen at any time. Uh, and there's always a fire to be put out. So this is, let those fires cool down for a little bit and given us some time to think about the long-term mission of the business um, and the best ways to address it 
because for years we were using a restaurant model, eggs restaurant model, to engage with these issues. Uh, but in a in a way, and I don't mean this to, to dismiss like how important egg was to me and to the community, but in a way, the restaurant was never really the point. The the point was always the mission, and the restaurant was the way we were uh, getting at that. Um, so it's given us some time to think about how we might change that model and. Uh, what might be more effective ways to engage with some of these issues and, and values that we have going forward. And it may end up being the case that we look through it and we're like, you know, yeah, this is, this is a great way to do it. We're going to keep, we're going to keep going with this, or we might make some minor tweaks uh, or there might be something that we couldn't have had the opportunity to envision without this break uh, and, and time to sort of lay fallow, which is an important part of any agricultural system at some point or another um, to see what, what springs up in the next round. So uh, it's very tough and uh, tough for our employees um, and tough emotionally, but I think it'll hopefully lead to some good things. How, how's Tokyo doing? Tokyo's doing better than, better than New York uh, on, the, on the virus, on the um, coronavirus <clears throat> and in business. Um, it was kind of a crazy thing to end up there. I think just a, f- a few years ago, uh, the story's kind of, kind of wild, um, but we were approached basically to bring egg to Tokyo, which was a fascinating process as we saw it through because farm to table doesn't exist quite in the same way there as it does here. Uh, There's a long and uh, extremely deeply rooted food culture and uh, agricultural system in in Japan, uh, but quite different. And so we were, it was cool to go through the process of meeting new farmers and, and understanding differences in dairy and egg and um, you know, meet different industries that uh, we, we had such a good grip on here having dealt with them for so many years, but to sort of relearn uh, and notice new things was pretty, pretty amazing process. And they're doing a great job over there. So awesome. I haven't, I haven't been in a while, but I'm excited when, when the time comes to be able to get back there. Yeah. Well, for those of you playing along chronologically, if the restaurant closed its doors in September, you very quickly got back on the bike of figuring out what to do because this cookbook started November of this year and will be coming out in February. So already you've used this uh, this regenerative moment to be also highly productive in a way that can tangibly help the community by providing meals to people who need them. So your efforts should be celebrated in that regard as well. And like you said, it's all about the mission. You know, it's like it's like any way that we can help to save the planet and to save each other and whatever, whatever manifestation that takes, none is unworthy. Yeah, it's certainly some of the things that we've been able to think about and bring to life would not have happened if if uh, we hadn't had to close the doors. And there's always some sort of silver lining we can look for, and, and this showed itself as a, as a pretty exciting way to continue to engage with people around food, around community, um, around storytelling. So I'm excited to get back to cooking for folks. <laughs> you know, it's, it's, a, it's a little different cooking for two people instead of for 500 every Saturday. But um, yeah, Dude, it's, I'm right it's, here. It's not You're welcome break. to invite me over for <laughs> dinner anytime. I will be there in socially distant spades. <laughs> we'll have to get some some omelets your way so we so we can uh get the final word on on whether it's worth it <laughs> omelets i want the duck we'll get you the duck too yeah okay one last thing we're going to close it out um this is a question i ask a lot of we, we ask a lot of people but i'm curious about yours evan especially considering the journey that your life has taken in the last short months with restaurants and having to sort of 
you know, go through that whole thing. What advice would you give the version of you that first walked into the kitchen at egg 11 years ago? When I first interviewed at egg, uh, I interviewed with George as a line cook and I picked it because I, I had left my last cooking job to apply for some grants. I was looking to do some, some work possibly abroad again, in sort of the writing and research world. Uh, but I needed to pay rent. So I found egg on Craigslist and I thought a breakfast spot, that'll be easy. I can just do that for a little bit and it won't take up <laughs> too much effort and, and then I can get out of here. And I actually told George when, when I interviewed that I would probably only be there for a few months because I had some other irons in the fire, and, uh, but, I, but I'd love to jump in. It seemed like a great place. It was mission aligned, all that stuff. And, and he brought me on anyway. I'm not, I don't really know why. Um, Cause that's not something you want to hear uh, a, a cook say when they interview for a job that they're only going to be there for a few months. That's often the case, but they don't tell you about it until, until they don't show up the next day. Um, so I had a, I had a very clearly, you know, as I was still there 11 years later, I didn't really understand what that place would end up being to me and, and the kind of, the path that uh, my personal and professional growth would take uh, so deeply rooted in that restaurant. And I guess if I, if I knew that, or if I had gone back and told myself that, I think it, it might've been scary because I, I certainly wasn't in a place to feel like I was ready to commit to cooking and, and to food in one location in Brooklyn at that point. Um, so I think I, you know, I don't, I don't know if I would have said anything. <laughs> I think I, I would have hopefully, <laughs> You know, there's, yeah, sure. Invest in a, you know, Tesla or whatever. Uh, yeah, buy Bitcoin. Buy Bitcoin. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. all, 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 all that stuff. Um, but I think, uh, you know, maybe just enjoy it. And I, I, I really did. Uh, I have enjoyed being an egg for forever. Um, and yeah, I don't think I would, I don't think I would change anything about it. That is the most Zen answer that we have ever had by far. <laughs> All right, Tony, do you have any, any other question forever or should we let him go? I think we got to let him go. I mean, he's probably a busy guy and I, I got my fill in this episode. Actually not. I'm <laughs> yeah. very hungry. I haven't gotten my fill. We all need to go, go eat something after talking about food this much. Yes. <laughs> Evan, thank you so much for coming on and talking with us um, today. Personally, I'm so glad that we had a chance to do this and we love you guys. Love Rachel as well. So happy for you. So happy for what this next chapter is going to bring. It's going to be fantastic and so proud of the work that you've done to go beyond just the idea of cooking food in a restaurant and make it about something more. It's truly an inspirational way to approach what is too often seen as a commoditized business. Thank you so much. And thanks both of you for, for having me on here. This has been a, it's been really fun. I'm looking forward to it for a while. And it's, it's the closest we're able to, to be right now. Uh, unfortunately, but it's a nice way to, to sit down and see your faces and talk for a bit. So. Appreciate yeah. it. Now for long, we'll be back. That was our conversation with Evan Hansor, the chef of the ex-chef of Egg, the author of Breakfast Recipes to Wake Up For, and the creator of the Tables of Contents cookbook, which is coming to a bookstore near you. So check that out. 
And um, thank you so much for coming on board. If you like this episode, give us a rate and review. We always love hearing from you. Let us know your questions and happy breakfast. Happy breakfast.